Section 6, Book 3, Chapter 3, Part 3 of The History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume 2, by Henry Charles Lee. Book 3, Jurisdiction, Chapter 3, Bishops. Philip leisurely postponed for a year the nomination of new judges. It may seem harsh to attribute this to the repulsive motive of prolonging the trial in order to enjoy the benefit of the sequestrated revenues of Toledo, but his financial needs were extreme and the temptation was great. In violation of the rule of the Inquisition that sequestrations were held for the benefit of the owner, to be accounted for unless confiscation was imposed, Philip had appointed Telogiron, administrator of the archbishopric, had procured his confirmation from Pius the Fourth, in spite of the earnest remonstrances of the chapter, and was quietly absorbing the revenues, except such portion as the Suprema claimed for the expenses of Carranza and of the trial. We happen to have evidence of this in the promise of a pension of twelve thousand cruzados on the Sea of Toledo, by which he won over Cardinal Carafa to the Spanish interest during the long conclave which resulted in the election of Pius the Fourth, and the acquiescence of that pope in his enjoyment of the revenues was probably purchased by the promise of a similar pension of 12,000 crowns to his favorite nephew, St. Charles Borromeo, a promise which he neglected to fulfill, although, in 1564, it was reckoned that he had already received from the sea some 800,000 crowns, when he quarreled with Pius for deciding the question of precedence in favor of France, the Pope threatened to make him disgorge, but without success. It is therefore easy to understand why the case promised to be interminable. The two years of the original brief expired in April 1561. Pius extended it for two years more, then, by a brief of April 4, 1563, he renewed it for another year, at the same time prescribing that Carranza should be more mercifully treated. Then, August 12, 1564, it was extended until January 1, 1565, and for another year still before the matter passed into the sterner hands of St. Pius V. These delays it was the fashion to impute to Carranza, Bishop Simancas, who hated him for the proverbial reason Odes quem laersis, asserts that he was constantly employing devices to prevent progress, but this is absurd. It was Carranza's interest to be released from his dreary incarceration and to be sent to Rome, where he felt confident of favor. The cumbrous estilo of the Inquisition enabled it to retard action at will, while the accused could do little either to hasten or to impede. When Philip at last acted on the power to name Carranza's judges, he appointed, March 13, 1561, Gaspar Zuniga, Archbishop of Santiago, who, on May 2nd, subdelegated the work to bishops Valtadano and Simancas, both members of the Suprema and hostile to the prisoner. Carranza, as the result of his recusation, thus found himself practically remanded to Valdez, who was moreover shielded from direct responsibility. Carranza naturally recused his new judges on the ground that they voted for his arrest, but Philip airily dismissed the recusation, saying that if this were just cause, no judge could try a culprit whose apprehension he had ordered. In the following June, Carranza was allowed to select counsel, a special favor for, 
as a rule the accused was restricted to one or two lawyers who had held appointments under the tribunal he chose martin de azpilqueta and alonso delgado and also dr santander and morales though of these latter we hear nothing subsequently azpilqueta known also as dr navarro was one of the leading canonists of the time and a man of the highest reputation he served faithfully to the end and probably thereby ruined his career in spain for he remained in rome as a papal penitentiary after nearly two years of imprisonment the formal trial began july thirtieth and proceeded in most leisurely fashion the rules of the inquisition required three monitions to be given within ten days after arrest but valtodano and simancas administered the first monition to discharge his conscience by confession on july thirtieth the second on august twenty fifth and the third on august twenty ninth he replied that for two years he had been desirous of learning the cause of his arrest and begging to be informed which showed how ignorant he was of inquisitorial practice for this was sedulously concealed from the accused who was sternly ordered to search his conscience and earn mercy by confession then on september first the fiscal presented the accusation in thirty-one articles to each of which the accused was required to make answer on the spot after this a copy was given to him on which to frame a more formal defence and for this he asked to have access to his papers a fruitless request for it was not the style of the inquisition to allow the accused to have means of justifying himself the articles of accusation were drawn not only from the commentaries but from the confessions of the lutheran heretics the gossip and hearsay evidence industriously collected and from the mass of papers seized when he was arrested many of these were not his own but essays of others there were extracts from heretic books which he had made at trent for the purpose of refuting them there were essays written when as a youth he had entered the dominican order forty years before there were notes of sermons taken down for practice when he was a student and sermons preached in the refectory as required by the rule of his order scattered thoughts jotted down for consideration and development memoranda made when examining heretic bibles and their comments for the inquisition in short all the vast accumulation of a man who for forty years had been busily studying and teaching and preaching and writing and wrangling on theology all the intellectual sins of youth and manhood had been scrutinized by malevolent eyes and he was called upon to answer for them without being allowed to know from what sources the charges were brought there was in this no special injustice inflicted on him it was merely the regular inquisitorial routine thus a year passed away and on june fifth fifteen sixty two the fiscal presented a second accusation for there was no limit to these successive charges each of which could be made to consume time these new articles were mostly based on rumors and vague expressions of opinion for all who were inimical secure in the suppression of their names were free to depose as to what they thought or imagined and it was all received as evidence these he answered as best he could and he succeeded in identifying the names of some of the adverse witnesses then he presented a defense doubtless drawn up as customary by his counsel for it was clear and cogent bearing little trace of his discursive and inconclusive style in support of this he handed in a long list of witnesses to be examined including philip the second and the princess juana but the fiscal passing over the royalties 
objected to the rest on the ground that they were friends of Carranza. Hostile testimony was admitted from any source, but that which was suspected of favorable partiality was rejected. As a principle, this was recognized in inquisitorial practice, but it was not habitually applied with so much rigor. On August 31, 1562, Carranza addressed an earnest appeal to Philip, reminding him of his command in April 1559 to trust in him alone. Three years had passed in prison, his case had scarce more than begun, and promised to be interminable. His judge, the Archbishop of Santiago, had not delegated full powers to Valtadano and Simancas. Questions arose which they could not or would not decide, and when those were submitted to the Archbishop, months elapsed before an answer was received. On January 19th, his council had issued a requisition on the Archbishop to come and hear the case personally or to grant full powers to his delegates, but up to the present time no reply had come. Never in the world, he said, was justice administered in this fashion, and he despairingly entreated Philip to expedite the case or permit him to appeal to the Pope. Whether or not this cry from the depths reached Philip, it produced no effect. By this time the affair had become a European scandal. The bishops assembled at the third convocation of the Council of Trent felt it acutely, both as an opprobrium to the Church and an attack on the immunities of their order. Philip was aware of this, and, in letters of October 30th and December 15th, 1562, to his representative at Trent, the Count of Luna, and to Vargas, his ambassador at Rome, he gave instructions to prevent its discussion, and to ask the Pope to order his legates to see that the Council kept its hands off from the Spanish Inquisition. It was with difficulty that the Council could be restrained. In the early months of 1563, the legates repeatedly reported that it ardently desired him to evoke the case and order the paper sent to Rome. In reply, Pius earnestly disclaimed indifference. He had urged the matter until Philip's temper showed that further pressure would disrupt the concord so necessary to the universal good. This did not satisfy the bishops, who persisted till Pius assured them that he had seen the earlier papers in the case and could affirm that Carranza's imprisonment was not unjust. He promised that he would not permit delay beyond April 1564, and that he would render a just judgment. If the bishops could not help their captive brother, they could at least provide for their own safety, and this they did by a decree which greatly strengthened a declaration adopted in 1551 concerning the exclusive papal jurisdiction over bishops. There was another way in which the council sought to aid Carranza. It had a standing congregation employed in compiling an index of prohibited books. The commentaries came legitimately before it, and, after examination, it was pronounced June 2, 1563, to be good and Catholic and most worthy to be read by all pious men. The secretary of the congregation, Fra Francesco Ferrario, issued a certificate of this, conferring license to print it, and Pius followed, June 23, with a papal license to the same effect. The Count of Luna was greatly exercised at this, and was aided by the celebrated scholar Antonio Augustin, then Bishop of Lareda. Matters went so far that the legate Morosini dreaded the disruption of the council, and peace was only restored by withdrawing the certificate of approbation. A copy had been given to Carranza's friends, which they were forced to surrender. 
Philip's indignation at this, as expressed in a letter to Luna of August 2nd, was too late to be of service, and is important only from its statement that he considered the affair of Carranza to be the most momentous that he had in connection with the council. Meanwhile, the case was dragging on, one series of charges being presented after another, until the aggregate was over 400, each of which furnished opportunity for discussion and procrastination. Besides the financial motive for this delay, Philip was now engaged in a struggle with Rome to protect the Inquisition from the consequences of its own evil work. There was nothing in his eyes more important than to preserve and augment its privileges, and his jealousy of any attempted interference by the Holy See was an overmastering passion. His secret object was to arrogate to it complete jurisdiction over bishops and prevent the final submission of the case to papal decision. Pius the Fourth, to do him justice, felt keenly the humiliating position in which he was placed by the overbearing determination of Philip, but each attempt at self-assertion only rendered more evident the contempt in which he was held. More than once he wrote to the Archbishop of Santiago rebuking him for the long delay which kept Carranza in prison while the case made no advance. He named January 1, 1564 as the limit of the Archbishop's commission after which the process, whether completed or not, was to be forwarded to Rome. The limit passed without obedience to his commands, and he wrote again, expressing high displeasure at the contumacy, which doomed such a man to grow old in the squalor of a prison without law or justice. Again he ordered the case, whether completed or not, to be sent to Rome. If there were delay, all concerned were ipso facto anathematized, deprived of all dignities and functions, and rendered infamous and incapable of restoration. All letters granting jurisdiction were revoked, and the case was evoked to Rome for decision. Carranza himself was to be delivered forthwith to the nuncio, who was empowered either to keep him in honorable custody or to liberate him on bail. These were brave words, but there was no heart to back them up with action, and, when they were disregarded, he extended, on August 12th, the Archbishop's commission until January 1565, after which, as previously ordered, the case was to be transmitted to Rome, and there was significant absence of the minatory tone so prominent in the previous briefs. Encouraged by this evidence of weakness, on November 24, 1564, Philip sent Rodrigo de Castro to Rome on a mission to have Carranza abandoned to the Inquisition, significantly instructing him not to disdain whatever means he might find necessary to win over everybody of influence. Even the unlimited bribery thus planned failed of success, although the secondary object of procrastination was effected. Castro commenced by demanding, in a private audience, that the case be abandoned to the Inquisition, but refused to put the demand in writing. Then he lowered his tone, and the Pope agreed to send a special legate to Spain to review the case and pronounce sentence. But Castro insisted that the Suprema and such prelates as the king might select should be adjoined to the legate. This the Pope refused. But there was some misunderstanding about it, and when Castro saw the commission drafted for the legate, he was furious. He sought an audience and accused the Pope of breaking his word. Pius lost his temper and said that in this whole business he had been treated like an ass. The affair was his, and he would do as he pleased. Thus rebuffed, Castro poured forth his griefs to Cardinal Borromeo, 
and declared that if the legate went to spain with such a commission he would not get a real this assertion may seem enigmatical to modern ears but it is explained by the remark of the shrewd french ambassador when reporting to charles the ninth the arrival of the legate that the case of carranza and the use of his legantine faculties would bring him much money the holy see has rarely sent abroad a body so distinguished as this legation predestined to failure the special legate a la terre was cardinal buoncompagni afterwards gregory the thirteenth accompanied by archbishop rosano subsequently urban the seventh fra felice peretti afterwards sixtus the fifth and giovanni alcobrandini subsequently cardinal and brother of clement the eighth the legate had been given discretional power as to admitting spanish associates but he found on arrival at madrid in november fifteen sixty five that the demand made on him was the impossible one which pius had refused to castro the whole suprema and prelates amounting in all to fifteen spaniards he offered to admit two as against two of his associates but he would do no more as he wrote to pius the terror inspired by the inquisition was beyond belief to admit a majority of Spaniards would be to invite injustice, but the acquittal of Carranza would be the conviction of the Inquisition, and any one who had the courage to bring this about would be exposed to lifelong persecution. Of course, Philip was firm, as his object was to baffle the legate, but discussion was cut short when the news came of the death of Pius IV, December ninth. Buona Compagni departed in haste to participate in the conclave, he was met at Avignon with the intelligence of the election of Pius V, January 7, 1566, in spite of which he continued his journey to Rome. Pius IV had carried to an extreme his subservience to Philip. Pedro de Avila, one of Philip's agents, wrote, August 23, 1565, that Cardinal Borromeo assured him that the Pope had done and was doing more than he had power to do in order to gratify the king, he had gone against the canons, the councils, and the cardinals, and, when recently he thought himself to be dying, nothing weighed on his conscience more heavily than this. His successor was a man of a different stamp. To few popes does Catholicism owe more than to St. Pius V, for, while pitiless in his persecution of heresy, his recognition of the need of reform and his unbending resolution to effect it, regained for the church much of the respect which it had forfeited the spanish agent speedily found that in the matter of carranza he was incorruptible and intractable as the ambassador zuniga plaintively reported to philip february twenty third fifteen sixty six he is certainly well-intentioned but having no experience in affairs of state and no private interests which are the two things that ordinarily make popes yielding he fixes his eyes on what he deems just and is immovable as cardinal inquisitor and dominican he had been favorably inclined to carranza whose friends received with hope the news of his accession they conveyed this by means of an arrow aimed at one of his window shutters and he responded by casting out a paper picked up by a person stationed for the purpose in which he addressed the new pope in the words of peter lord if it be thou bid me come unto thee on the water matthew chapter 14 verse 28 pius did not need urging one of his first acts was to dispatch a messenger to buono Campagni, ordering him to remain and bring the affair to a conclusion but the legate's spanish experience did not incline him to return from avignon 
doubtless his report brought conviction that justice was not to be expected in spain for pius speedily made a demand for the person of carranza and the papers so that he might decide the case accustomed to browbeat popes philip replied that the demand was offensive and contrary to the royal prerogative as an attempt to change a matter unalterably fixed by the holy see and that it would not be entertained the pope could commit the case to such persons as he pleased provided they were spaniards otherwise if carranza should linger in prison until he died the responsibility would not be with those who had offered every possible alternative this audacious answer only strengthened the determination of pius who summoned zuniga and told him to tell his master that he exposed himself to all the indignation of the holy see for the pope was resolved to carry the matter to a conclusion zuniga was silenced and could only report to philip the terrible earnestness of pius from which there was no hope of diverting him that he was in deadly earnest is apparent in his brief of july thirtieth which he caused to be privately printed and sent copies to nuncio rosano with an autograph letter of august the third commanding its rigid execution after dwelling on the injustice and scandal of the treatment of carranza he deprived valdez the suprema and all concerned of jurisdiction in the case under pain of excommunication and suspension of functions carranza was to be set at liberty and after appointing a vicar for his see of toledo was at once to present himself to the pope for judgment under pain of the indignation of god and of the apostles peter and paul and of excommunication all the papers in the case were to be delivered in rome within three months and any one impeding the execution of these commands incurred excommunication and suspension from office by this time pius was known as a man who was not to be trifled with but valdez and the suprema were ready to risk a rupture with the vice-regent of christ rather than to remit their victim to his judgment when philip consulted them they urged him not to permit even a copy of the process to be sent to rome much less carranza's person lest he should impair his prerogatives they asserted that the papal brief had given ample power both to prosecute and to sentence and that having been granted it could not be withdrawn that under the papal concessions to ferdinand and isabella the spanish inquisition was wholly independent of rome that if the episcopal character were successfully urged in this case some other excuse would be found in other cases valdez might be willing to risk a schism but philip drew back it was not to be thought of that the catholic king should incur excommunication and he recognized what strength the heretic cause throughout europe would derive from such a quarrel and such a cause still he dallied until pius forced valdez to resign and threatened to lay all spain under interdict he had encountered a will stronger than his own and antonio tipolo the venetian envoy is doubtless correct in saying that no other pope but pius could have carried his point the pressure became irresistible and he yielded carranza under charge of the hated inquisitor diego gonzalez and guarded by a body of troops left valladolid december fifth reaching cartagena on the thirty first where he was confined in the castle until april twenty seventh fifteen sixty seven awaiting the arrival of the voluminous papers of the case when he was placed on the admiral's ship which was conveying the duke of alva on his fateful way to flanders civita vecchia was reached may twenty fifth and rome may twenty eighth where he was confined in the castle of san angelo a second imprisonment that was to last nine years 
it was much less harsh than the previous one besides his two faithful attendants he was allowed two others he was assigned apartments in the quarters reserved for archbishops he was sometimes permitted to leave his room under guard and enjoy the landscape and at the first jubilee he was admitted to confession though communion was still denied the case promised to be as interminable in rome as it had been in spain the anxiety of Pius for a thorough investigation caused endless delays, which were skillfully improved by the agents of the Inquisition. The enormous mass of papers reached Rome in the utmost confusion, and some portions were lacking, which had to be sent for. Then they had to be translated, as well as the voluminous commentaries, which consumed a year. Philip was frequently sending new opinions and statements, and Pius ordered all of Carranza's writings, and even notes of his lectures taken by students, to be searched for and brought to Rome. He formed a special congregation of seventeen consultors, including four of the Spaniards who had been concerned in the case, with Ramirez as the fiscal. When all was ready and the congregation met weekly under the presidency of the Pope, the Spaniards insisted on his presence, and— as his other duties frequently prevented this, the affair dragged on from year to year. Philip followed it with intense anxiety, as is shown in his correspondence with Zuniga. Thus, a long letter of instructions, June 6, 1570, tells the ambassador to assure the Pope that everything had been done in Spain with the most minute deliberation. There was almost a childish insistence on the opinions of some obscure theologians as to Carranza's guilt, and it is pointed out that, if he is acquitted, he will teach and preach with greater authority than before, and the whole prosecution will have been a blunder. All this, he says, should have weight with the Pope, who is moreover to be threatened with what the king may find it necessary to do if the sentence is warped by personal considerations. Foolish communications of this kind were reiterated until August 12, 1571. Pius, in an autograph letter, alluded to the repetition of these insinuations, which he declared to be groundless, and in dignified terms warned Philip not to let his pious zeal get the better of his discretion. End of Book 3, Chapter 3, Part 3 Recording by Kathleen Nelson, Austin, Texas, August 2010